If you don't have your Bibles out there yet, go ahead and get there. Daniel chapter 2. I read a story this past year about a family, you probably read this story as well, uh, that was selling what they called a mineral miracle solution. They're from Florida. (laughs) According to them, uh, they had found the ability with this miracle solution to not only cure COVID, but cure cancer and malaria as well. Um, They had literally been able to do what thousands of people over decades and decades have not been able to figure out how to do. And they just decided that they would give it to the world. And when I say give, I mean sell, because (laughs) you can't invent the cure for cancer without making some money off of it. Um, And so they decided to sell this thing and they sold thousands of bottles of this solution. According to the DOJ, they netted over a million dollars as a result. Nice, yes. Um, Entrepreneurial spirit of America. Um, The problem, though, is that it wasn't a miracle solution at all. In fact, uh, if you studied uh, a little bit closer, you realize it wasn't medicine at all. It was actually a combination of all kinds of toxic chemicals. And basically, it was the equivalent of drinking bleach. (laughs) So... That's why we read about this story last year. Um, The side effects were awful, vomiting, diarrhea, and even worse. And so eventually the DOJ charged his family with fraud. According to the FDA, and this is really, really tragic, um, a lot of the people who drank this so-called miracle solution ended up with life-threatening illnesses. Um, Some of them ended up in the hospital. Some of them actually died as a result of this miracle. And if that wasn't bad enough, the family that was responsible for this toxic solution sold it under the guise of a religious institution, a church, the Genesis 2 Church of Health and Healing. Um, From what I read, they were hoping that if they created a nonprofit and kind of had this guise of a religious organization that they would avoid scrutiny and the government wouldn't look at them. And so that is how they move forward. Guys, this is a tragic, it's a shocking story, um, but unfortunately, it's not the only one like it. I can't even begin to count all of the people, all of the organizations, all of the institutions, even religious institutions who are currently in existence doing essentially the same thing to people all over the world right now. And while they may not be selling bleach and calling it medicine, the fraud is the exact same. Buy into our philosophy and you'll be satisfied. Take our advice and you'll be healed. Follow our steps and all of your wildest dreams will come true. Give a little bit of money. Sow a little seed of faith, health and wealth and prosperity will be yours. If you worship our gods and if you listen to our gurus, then you will be set free. This is essentially what every philosophy, every worldview, and every religious system is promising all over the world. If you believe what we're teaching, if you buy into what we're selling, this miracle solution for your souls, if you take our prescriptions, then you will flourish, you will thrive, and you will live life to the fullest. Peace purpose, freedom, and hope. And and of the 7.9 billion people on the planet right now, every single one of us is buying into one of those philosophies. 
is buying into one of those worldviews or is buying into one of those religious systems. Here's the thing. If you want to make sure that you're not buying into a fraud and you want to make sure that what your worldview, your philosophy, your religion is legit, all you have to do is look at the results. Does it set people free or does it lead to more bondage? Does it give you more peace or does it create more anxiety or at least not even remotely touch the anxiety that you felt for the last two years because of our crumbling world? Does it lead you to joy and contentment or does it perpetuate this never ending cycle of want that hamster wheel that you can't get off of? If you want to know if you've really found the miracle solution for your soul or you've just been duped into drinking some poison, check the results. All you have to do is pay attention to how you respond when the world is caving in. All you have to do is just look back over the last two years and see like, listen, um, feels like I'm losing everything. How am I responding? How do you respond when you don't have all the answers? Pay attention to how you respond in those moments because if you've still got peace, if you've still got purpose and you've still got joy and you've still got hope and you've still got freedom, then maybe what you've got is actually real. On the other hand though, if you don't have those things, then you can tell right away that what you've been sold is a dud. The validity of your worldview, or you could put it this way, the realness of your God is revealed in the results he produces and specifically the results that he produces in times of crisis. So our story today in Daniel chapter two is all about this. It's a story of a king in crisis. It's a story of a king whose world is caving in all around him. And the story of a king who's realizing for the first time in his life that his gods can't help him, that his gurus are nothing more than frauds, and that his entire religious system is as useless to him in his moment of need as a bottle of bleach is to a COVID patient. And it's in this moment that the real God, the God of heaven, shows up. Now, it's important to note that the first six chapters of Daniel are actually written as a type of political satire. This is the fun stuff I get paid to study. I got to buy a book that's not even in publication anymore and it cost way too much money to buy this book, but it's literally all about the literary form and the technicalities of the genre of the book of Daniel. I'm not gonna bore you with that, but I'll just tell you that when you dive deep into this kind of stuff, what you see is that the first six chapters of Daniel are meant to be humor. They're meant to be read as comedy. They're meant to make fun of Babylon as a society and as a whole. And they're, they're meant to juxtapose the ridiculousness of Babylon with the wisdom of the exiles. And I don't know, did anyone ever grow up watching Hogan's Heroes? Like any of you? Yes, anyone over 30. Six of you. <laughs> so glad you're here. We need more of you. Please stay. Please don't leave. Um, 
Yeah, but Hogan's Heroes is basically like this comedy that's making fun of the Nazis. And basically the Nazis are a bunch of bumbling fools and the guards, all they care about is like eating sugar and they make every mistake known to plant and known to man. And the, the American prisoners in the war camp are like geniuses. And they're like basically winning the war from, it's just a funny show, okay. But that's kind of what Daniel 1 through 6 is. It's satire. The king, in this, in this chapter, you can see it. It's so clear, like the juxtaposition. The king is just over-the-top paranoid, over-the-top violent. He's about to cut up all of his wise men because they can't do an impossible task. And at the same time, the exiles are calm and wise. The gurus, these wise men, these magicians and sorcerers are ignorant and useless. And at the same time, the exiles know exactly what to do in the moment. The gods of the Babylonians are distant, they're removed, and yet the God of Judah is present and he's deeply involved. One worldview produces panic and the other produces peace. One leads to despair, the other determination, and on and on the contrasts go. And so this story is meant to be humor at the expense of the Babylonians. And it's meant to be subversive in that way. It's meant to be rebellious. It's meant to stir up courage in the exiles, not just in that moment, but for the centuries that would follow as more and more kingdoms came in, like the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, the Israelites would read Daniel and they would remember, oh wait, there's somebody bigger behind this. So it would give them courage. And so, even as Babylon is trying to colonize these exiles, they're trying to convert the exiles to their way of life and their religion and their philosophy. Um, they would go to this humor, Babylon B for like the, you know, pre, I don't know, it's just ancient Babylon B here. And they would read it and they would just laugh. Like how ridiculous is that? And so the goal of this story that Doug just read for us I'm going to try to put it in a nutshell for you, is the fact that everything about Babylon is a fraud. Everything. It's king, it's gurus, it's religious system. Most importantly, it's gods. They're not what they claim to be. They can't follow through on what they promised. And at the same time, it's not just about how Babylon is a fraud, it's also about how the God of Judah is real and how he can be trusted in everything. Even though Judah has broken her promise, God will not break his. Even though they're in a crisis brought on by their own rebellion, God's still gonna give them aid. Remember how I told you in week one, if you, if you were here, Judah went into Babylon obsessed with all the gods. You remember how I told you that? They were just like, they could not quit idolatry. They loved the Baals. They loved all of this stuff. And then they came out of Babylon 70 years later, only worshiping the God of heaven. You remember how I told you that? It's because they got the point of the satire. <laughs> they got the point. Babylon is a fraud. The proof of validity is found in the results and specifically the results in times of crisis. And so today, this is what I wanna do with you. Short time and good news, it's not even gonna be as long as last week, but it's gonna be hopefully really powerful. What I wanna do is I wanna show you um, two of the results. 
basically what is the result of buying into Babylon? And then what is the result of buying into what we would just call the Christian gospel? What are the two results? I'm going to show you what's going on. I'm going to show you what it meant for them in that moment. And then I'm going to show you what it means for us now, you know, 2,600 years later, because it has massive implications. Finally, after I show you these responses, I'm going to show you the good stuff. And it's going to blow your mind because all of it is about Jesus. Okay, so let's get after it. I don't even have a real outline because it's 30 verses and it's impossible. I'm just going to show you the first thing is the response of the Babylonians. So if you have your Bibles, look back at verse, uh, verse 10. Um, if, I, if I had one word to describe the response of the Babylonians, it would be the word despair. And this is it right here. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. Maybe your Bible says impossible. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. I don't know if you've got a highlighter or if you've got a pen, but if you do, just underline those two verses because they are the main point of Daniel chapter 2. That's what everything hinges on. In fact, when you read Daniel 1 through 6, you might be tempted to believe it's all about Daniel. This chapter is all about God. And that is the main point of Daniel chapter 2. The king has a dream. He's not sure what it means, but in his gut, he knows it's not good. In his gut, he, he can kind of see that there's a statue. We're going to talk about the dream next week, don't worry. But he sees there's a statue, the statue gets destroyed, and he kind of knows intuitively that that statue's him. So he's panicking um, and he calls all of his magicians and enchanters and sorcerers and astrologers to come in and tell him what his dream means. He needs his gurus to make sense of his life. So do you. So do I. He needs the gurus to help him, give him sense and direction and meaning and purpose so that he can have some sense of peace and joy and hope. This is what's really surprising though in all of this. And that's the fact that he doesn't trust these men. Isn't that kind of crazy? It's like he knows that they're just gonna give him some BS. He knows that they're just gonna lie so that they make him happy and they keep their jobs and the status quo is met. And so the king who's ruling over this entire religious system, and this is the irony of it, he employs all of the sorcerers and all of the magicians and all of the astrologers doesn't even really buy into it. Isn't that wild? Like, they are a massive part of Babylonian culture. They have an incredible amount of influence and yet he already knows it's pretty much a fraud. And so he calls all of these men around him and he doesn't just tell them to make sense of his thoughts. He tells them to read his thoughts. Don't just tell me what my dream means because you're just gonna make something up that you think is gonna make me happy. I want you to tell me what my dream was. Could you imagine being one of those guys? He says, listen, if you can do that, then I'll know that what you're peddling is true. And if you can do that, I'll reward you. I will bless you. You're gonna have the world. But if you don't, I'm gonna cut you up into a bunch of pieces and I'm gonna destroy your homes. I think what he wanted to see is if they were actually connected to the gods that they claimed to be connected to. 
I used to try to do this all the time when I was growing up with my twin. I know we got a couple twins in the room. Maybe you did this too. We'll talk later. We'll, we'll compare notes. Um, but we used to try to read each other's minds all the time because like legend has it, twins can do that. You know, you can like have this uh, telepathy. And so <laughs> we, would, we would stand in front of each other and be like, okay, like just focus on something really, really, really hard. And he'd be like, okay. And I would just like focus so hard. And it was always math. It was always like the number three or a green triangle. Like it was just this random stuff. And I'm like, green triangle, green triangle, green triangle. I'm just thinking about it. And then he would try to like tap into my brain, you know, and he'd try to get in there. And he, he never got it. Like it never worked. Twins cannot read each other's minds. Neither can sorcerers. It's an impossible task. And so the gurus of Babylon, they're freaking out. They try to evade, they try to buy time, but that doesn't work. The king's like, I see right through you. You're just trying to buy time. It's not gonna work. And so then they try to make excuses and they try to appeal to reason and that doesn't work either. It just makes the king angrier. Now his face is getting red and he's about to cut him up. Till finally, after all of this, back and forth, the king looks at them and he says, listen, I'm gonna kill every single one of you. If you can't do what I've asked, full stop. The word is sure. The command is final. If you can't tell me my dream, you're all dead men. Look at how they respond again in verse 11. This is the most important verse in chapter two. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. In other words, the gods know, but they're not here. What? Archaeologists have found at least 50 temples in ancient Babylon, presumably for 50 gods, and they're not here? Bell who was the main God. We talked about him a little bit last week. Pretty important. If you weren't here, you need to listen to that. The old dragon of Genesis 3. He's also called Marduk. He's Babylon's main God. He has his own temple. And you might remember from week one, they stole the vessels from Yahweh's temple in Jerusalem and they carried them back to Babylon and they put those vessels in Bel's temple because that was signifying that he had conquered Yahweh. And now all of a sudden, the king is hearing for the first time, Bel's not there. He knows the answer, but he's not here. Where did all the gods of the Babylonians run off to? It's like they're all on vacation or something. It actually reminded me of the showdown in, in 1 Kings 18. You remember this with Elijah and the prophets of Baal? You remember this? Same God, different setting. Baal, Bell. listen to last week. They're trying to call down fire from heaven. And these prophets of Baal are just like screaming and they're yelling and they're crying out. and They're doing all of these dances and stuff. And he's not listening because he's not there. And so then they're like, let's get our swords out. And they get their swords out and they just start gashing up their bodies. And the, the Bible literally says that blood is gushing everywhere. And they're like, this will get his attention. <laughs> Look at verse 27 of 1 Kings 18. At noon, Elijah started mocking them saying, cry louder, 
for he is a God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself. That's in the Bible. Maybe he's on the toilet. He's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep and just can't be uh, bothered right now. Maybe you need to yell louder so that you can wake him up. There's one thing that we've learned about this God, Bell, throughout the Old Testament, is that he is either not there or he just really doesn't care. He's not interested. You can yell, you can scream, you can cut yourself up, but you're not on his radar. So no prophet could find him in Judah and no magician could find him in Babylon. He is very much the God who is never there when you need him. That's what the king is realizing for the first time. And there's a really interesting point to note here. And that's the fact that the Babylonians had temples for their gods, but evidently they didn't believe that the gods hung out in those temples. And so they created this whole class of wise men called astrologers. And astrologers basically believed that, okay, we built these temples for the gods and I guess they come back and forth, but they actually live in the stars. And so the astrologers spent their entire lives studying the patterns of the stars and studying the patterns of the planets because they thought that these stars that were moving and these planets were moving were, were connected to the gods. And they, they came up with some incredible astronomical discoveries, like science that we still use to this day. But they weren't really interested in the science. That was secondary. They were trying to track the gods. They were actually one of the first civilizations ever to develop a horoscope. And the horoscope that we have in our culture today is mostly from their horoscope. They invented it. Horoscopes do what? I, I need... I need some advice for today. And I need some direction for my future. That's what they were doing back then. They're trying to find the gods in the heavens. Pay attention to that because it's coming, it's all coming back full circle. They had sorcerers and magicians carrying out all of the rituals in the temples. They had astrologers tracking all the movements of the gods in the cosmos, but even with all of that, the gods were still distant. You can see how hopeless this situation was, right? They had an incredible system of worship and sacrifice and ritual and study, but in their moment of crisis, none of it worked. It couldn't do what it promised. And this is what I want you to see because this has massive implications for your life and for mine too. Every single little G God, and I say little G God because there's only one eternal God, by the way. Don't be confused. All the others are created beings by him. He is El, he is Yahweh Elohim, and they're all subservient, okay? Every other little G God that has ever promised you anything is the exact same way as all these Babylonian gods. Every single philosophy that has promised to lead you to the abundant life, but has promised that apart from the creator of life is a fraud. Every single religious system that has ever promised to meet the deepest needs of your souls, that offers you salvation for all eternity or a utopia or a heaven or paradise or whatever it is, 
apart from the one who made your soul to be satisfied with himself is leading you astray. Every single worldview that has ever promised to make sense of your present and give you direction for your future is ultimately gonna leave you hopeless because in your moment of crisis, every other God will abandon you. Every other philosophy, every other system will break down and every other worldview will leave you stranded in darkness. The despair of these Babylonian gurus is the same despair that every single one of us will face if our God isn't the God of heaven. Now, I, I know that you're probably sitting there thinking like, I don't have a lot of gods. You know, like I'm not, I don't have like the, the little G gods, but I would just ask you, what if you put your hope in? Where do you get your guidance? Who gives you your direction? Who do you call God? What do you worship? Maybe some of you are thinking right now, I don't have a God and I don't worship anything. Maybe you're a materialist. Maybe you're a humanist. Maybe you're an atheist. And if that's you, I'm so glad that you're here. I mean, really, I am. You're, you're welcome here always. I would just push back a little bit since you're in my space. Um, and we can have a coffee sometime too, but let me just push back gently. Um, if, if every single one of us have to put our hope in something, every single one of us do. So I know that whether you're a, an atheist or an agnostic or whatever, you've got your hope in something. Even though you might not call it worship, you worship something too, because every single one of us worships something all the time. You don't have to call it worship. You could call it love or something else. And David Foster Wallace, who wasn't a Christian by any stretch of the imagination, who was actually an atheist, put it this way in legendary speech. And I've quoted this before, but it's been a while, so I'm bringing it back out. He said it this way. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough and never feel that you have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, then you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud and always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. See, the question isn't, are you a worshiper? Everyone's a worshiper. The question is, what are you worshiping or who are you worshiping? The question isn't, do you have a God? Everyone has a God. Maybe you're your own God, but which God do you have? Who do you serve? Anything you choose other than the God of heaven is an imitation. It's a fraud. And in your moment of crisis, 
I promise you it will let you down. That's what we learn from the response of the Babylonians. It's despair. So now let's look at the response of the exiles. If there was one word to describe the Babylonians, it's despair. If there's one word to describe the exiles, it's prayer. Look back at verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. This is his discipleship group, by the way, his friends. And they told him to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. And let me just pause here because we have groups like this. This wasn't the first time they got together to pray. Whenever there was a moment of need, whenever there was a crisis, whenever there was a situation, do you know what they were doing together? Praying. This is just, they were already ready to go. It was just like their weekly meeting, okay? Let's pray again. So if you're not in a group, get in one. And, and they told to seek mercy from heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed. That would be good with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and power, might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells in him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. You see the contrast? It's meant to be stark. The Babylonians fall on their knees in despair. The exiles fall on their knees in prayer. The Babylonians are certain that their gods are far away. They know the answer, but they're nowhere to be found. The exiles are certain that God listens when they pray. The Babylonians see an impossible situation. The exiles see an opportunity for their God to show off. They're not worried about their predicament because they know the God who controls everything. They're not shaken by the king's threats because if you look at their prayer, they're praying to the God who sets up kings and removes kings. It's not that big of a deal. They're not worried about the mystery that needs to be revealed because they know the God who reveals deep and hidden things. And though the world might be covered in darkness, the light is in him and he makes that light known to all who seek it. I would imagine that Daniel and his friends had these scriptures ringing in their ears. Proverbs 2, 6, for the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding, not from some horoscope, not from some star patterns. The Lord gives wisdom. Wisdom is not achieved. Wisdom is received. Somebody, somebody made that up that is way smarter than me. I don't know who though. So don't quote me. It's going to be on a quote card, Sonny. It's going to say Ben Davian. and be like, oh no, that's plagiarism. I didn't say that. I don't. <laughs> Proverbs 15, 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. And then Psalm 31, 1, 2, 6 through 8. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. This is just ringing in Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Lean in and listen to me. Rescue me speedily. 
Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You are close by. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Guys, where do you think these teenagers got their courage from? Where do you think they got this ability to not be running around in panic and chaos? It's because they knew those passages. We talked about this last week. Prayer flows out of a belief that God doesn't just possess power, but that he will give it to you if you ask for it. Prayer flows out of the belief that God doesn't just know the answers, but he loves to make those answers known to those who seek them. Prayer ultimately flows out of the belief that God is not only there, but he deeply cares about you and your situation and your pain and your hurt and the darkness. And he enters into it because he loves you. He is a rock of refuge. He is a strong fortress to those who cry out for help. And unlike the gods of Babylon, he is always there when you need him. Daniel and his friends believed this. And so they got down on their knees and they prayed to the God of heaven. So now the big question is, what are the results? (laughs) He heard them. He answered them. He rescued them with his wisdom and might. Guys, I know that a lot of you, maybe, maybe more than I know, are facing impossible situations today. Maybe it seems like your world is caving in, falling apart. You don't have any clarity. You don't have any direction. You don't have any hope for your future. What you need to understand today is that Daniel 2 is in the Bible for a lot of reasons, but you're one of them. Daniel 2 is in the Bible for you. It is literally, mystically, supernaturally, the God of heaven speaking directly into your soul that he cares for you, that he is close to you and that he is in control of your situation. He's saying, let me be your rock. Let me be your fortress. Let me be the light that guides you in the darkness. What seems like an impossibility to you is nothing more than an opportunity for him to show off and he wants to do it. The exiles understood this and so in their moment of crisis, they prayed and the result was a miracle. I gotta share this story with you that I read this past week by Erwin Erwin McManus. He's a pastor, author, uh, wrote a book called the, uh, the Unstoppable Force or An Unstoppable Force or something like that. And in this book, um, he, he shares a story about this really powerful moment where his church was praying for a miracle and God did it. And I want to share this story with you because as a church, we're going to be praying for a similar miracle pretty soon here. But that's for our members meeting tonight. So be there at five. 
At the time of the story, McManus is leading a small church in Dallas and uh, they're looking for a piece of land to build a church building on. Um, somehow they were able to find an, an acre of land right outside the skyline in Dallas. Cannot find property in Dallas. And somehow it was affordable. Like it wasn't beyond their reach, even though most of their small church was on welfare. And so they just started praying, God, if you want this acre of land to be our land, would you give us this acre of land? And they prayed and prayed and prayed. And then after a while, some, some collection of churches gave them the money that they needed to buy this acre of land. And it was an incredible move of God and they bought the land. That wasn't the miracle though. In fact, it was just the beginning of like a lot of bad stuff. They went to get the building permits so that they could start building a building on this land and, and they got the building permits and then they realized actually, no, they didn't get the building permits because it had been declared unbuildable land, which is why it was so cheap. After a number of core samples were taken of the land, they realized that it was at least 25 feet deep of nothing more than compacted garbage. It's a landfill. Of course, McManus and the church were devastated over this just waste of precious time and precious money. And there was nothing to do other than pray. And so as a church, they just started to pray. And, and they were literally praying for a miracle. They were praying that God would take this heap of trash and make it buildable. So they're praying for months and months. And um, they believed that God had opened up the door to buy the land. They believed that God had led these churches to give them money to buy the land. They believed that he wanted a church right out of the skyline. And they're just praying. And after months of praying for God to move, a woman in the congregation came up to Irwin. And she was like, listen, we've been praying for months that God would... Um, make our land useful. So it must have been taken care of by now. <laughs> and so Erwin was just kind of like, well, maybe that's the Holy Spirit speaking. And so he went back to the city and he was like, hey, can you get some more core samples? And so they were like, okay, yeah. And they went and they got core samples and the trash had been turned into soil. <laughs> and they built a building. And the building's still there to this day. Listen to how he described it. He said, how did this happen? Was it because the core sample was on a different part of the land or could it be that God had actually performed a miracle and changed the landfill to good land? What I do know is that the same realtor who sold the property to, me, property to me came back and offered me three times the amount he had sold it for once he heard that the clearance to build had actually come through. What I do know is that the previous owners could not build on the property, but we could. What I do know is that we were told the property was worthless and unusable. What I cannot tell you is what happened beneath the ground at 2815 South Irvie Street. All I can tell you is what I know. And that is that God took my failure and performed a miracle. Today, Cornerstone worships on that acre of land in a sanctuary built by our own hands. Guys, what might seem like an impossibility to you is nothing more than an opportunity for God to show off. 
And I just wonder how much of the miraculous are we missing out on because we are too rationalistic and modernistic and we have to have science for everything. And so we depend on science as a God and we never drop to our knees and pray. What are we missing out on? Like, listen, I am not from like the charismatic world. I'm not from the Pentecostal world. And I'll just tell you what, what God has been showing me for the last three years is I have missed a lot because I don't pray like that. Oh, how much more of God could we see of his wisdom in our lives, his direction, if we just raised the sail and said, spirit, guide me, be the wind, direct me. You want direction? The spirit of God is in you and he wants to lead you. What if you just asked him? Oh man, wisdom and might, wisdom and power. So many of us live powerless lives like addicts in chains, as if sin still has a hold, as if Romans 7 is supposed to be the the natural existence of every Christian. The good I wanna do, I don't do. The evil I don't wanna do, I keep doing. That is not normal. Romans 8 is normal. What if you believed that? that you can set your mind on the things of the spirit, which is life. And you don't have to set your mind on the things of the flesh, which is death and destruction. You can actually walk with the spirit and freedom and power. It seems like an impossibility. Let me just ask you again, where do you go in your time of need? Who do you look to in your moments of crisis? Who or what is the God that you run to when everything is falling apart and caving in? If it's the God of heaven, oh, you're in good hands. He's got you. He cares for you. He's close by and he's in control. He wants to give you his wisdom. He wants to give you his power. He wants to give you his light to guide you through the darkness. That's what Daniel 2, 1 through 30 is all about. But listen to this, because now we're going to get to Jesus. There is so much in this story that would have given the exiles hope and courage and peace and joy. It would have encouraged the Israelites for centuries as Persia and Greece and Rome just kept conquering them and abusing them and trampling them. They would go back to Daniel 2 and they would get courage from this story but we have the benefit of reading the story on the other side of the cross. And so the hope and the joy and the peace and the courage that they would have gotten out of Daniel 2 is intensified for us because we know that it's all pointing to Jesus. There's some really deep and beautiful symbolism in here that I wanna show you as we close because ultimately it shows us why the Christian gospel is different from every other religious system every other philosophy and every other worldview, why the Christian God is so much better. The symbolism is wrapped up in this title that Daniel gives to Yahweh when he calls him the God of heaven. Get your Bibles back out. Don't put them away yet. He uses this title twice, once in verse 17 and once in verse 19. He tells his friends, let's pray to the God of heaven. And then he addresses God as the God of heaven. If you've got a pen, circle it. This title, the God of heaven is 
so significant. It's significant for a lot of reasons. It is deeply symbolic because it almost always only shows up in exilic literature, which means the books that were written in exile or like Nehemiah, which is post-exile and they're rebuilding the city, like that's exilic literature. Nine times in the book of Daniel, we see this title. Six times in the book of Ezra. Four times in the book of Nehemiah. The only other time we see it is in 2 Corinthians 36, which is actually talking about Israel's captivity. This is an exilic name for God. During the exile, God was known by his people as the God of heaven. Why is that important? What does that mean? It's heartbreaking. You see, when Judah rebelled against God, when they turned away from the Lord, Ezekiel saw this vision. The prophet Ezekiel saw a vision of the glory of the Lord departing out of the temple and off of the earth. It's really, really significant because this was the Shekinah glory that had led the people of God through the desert and then it had taken up residence in the Holy of Holies on the mercy seat and it was the constant reminder of the presence and the protection, the provision and the blessing of God. His glory was with them and Ezra gets this vision of that Shekinah glory rising up off the mercy seat, exiting the Holy of Holies, leaving the temple, going out to the Mount of Olives on the east side of the city, and then rising up to the heavens, never to return again. So the exiles called him the God of heaven. It was a name that was given to him out of humility, and it was an acknowledgement that their sin was why they were in exile. It was an acknowledgement that even though he was there and that he was with them and he was providing for them, his glory was gone. Because of their rebellion, they had been separated. Even after Cyrus, the Persian king, allows Nehemiah to go back and rebuild Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple, do you know what never comes back? The glory. So in Daniel 2, you have the Babylonians in despair because their gods don't dwell with them. And then you have the exiles in prayer longing for the day when the God of heaven will bring his glory back down to earth. Then almost 600 years later, the gospel writer picked up his pen and he wrote down the most incredible announcement of all time for both the pagans and the Jews. John chapter one. The word who was with God and who was God and who spoke all things into existence and who created all things, Yahweh Elohim has taken on flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory 
as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You see what's going on in John chapter one? It's all of the despair of the Babylonians being eradicated and all of the heartache of the Jews being healed in Jesus Christ as the God of gods takes on flesh and brings the glory back down with him. It's all pointing to Jesus. So now because of the cross of Christ, we have an even greater hope and an even greater peace and an even greater joy because we see something even deeper than they saw about what it means that God is close to us. He's not just over our suffering, he entered into our suffering. Because of the cross, we see something even more incredible about his care for us something even more profound about the way he loves us, that he'll literally do anything, even lay down his life so that we can live. They didn't know that in Babylon. Because of the cross, we have something even more beautiful about the sovereignty and control of God because it shows us that no matter how dark the night is, no matter how deep the pain is, no matter how devastating the loss is, he is working all things together for his glory and for your good. We have that on the other side of the cross. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are the validation that the Christian gospel and the Christian God are the real deal. They're not frauds. They are the proof that he can actually be trusted and that those who trust in him will never be put to shame. Jesus shows us that the God of heaven is really the good shepherd. I'm gonna close with this. Jesus shows us that the God of heaven is the one who satisfies the longings of our souls with green pastures and still waters, the green pastures and still waters of his presence. He's the one who shows us that the God of heaven heals us and restores us even when our sin drives us away from him. He's the one that shows us that the God of heaven will walk with us and comfort us and guide us even in the darkest of valleys. He shows us that the God of heaven chases us down, hunts us down like hounds with goodness and mercy. Goodness means he takes the evil that is done to you and flips it upside down like Joseph in Egypt. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. The goodness is hunting you down means that the evil that was done to you was gonna be flipped by Christ. Mercy is the opposite. It's the evil that you've done will be flipped. Goodness is hunting you down. Mercy is hunting you down. And for all eternity, you will dwell in the house of the Lord. That word dwell, man. The God of heaven can be trusted even in your times of crisis because he is good, he's sovereign, he's in control, and he's close by. Amen.